Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with critics, reviews and professional criticism. I'm Adam Brooks and this week my guest is... Chris Mandel. Chris is a remarkable guy. At 29 years old, he's now the entertainment director of Shortlist, as I expect he'll tell you in a second, uh, which is the UK's biggest men's lifestyle magazine with over half a million copies hitting the streets every week. Um, So yeah, let's uh, hear a bit more about him in his own words. I am entertainment director at Shortlist Magazine. Uh, before that, I was features editor at the same title. And before that, I was mainly a freelance writer who contributed to Vice, Esquire, The Independent, Telegraph, and like a handful of other places as well. There you go. This was a particularly fun episode. Uh, my thanks to Chris for being very candid. Uh, you're going to hear names dropped from beginning to end, which I think is a good thing. Uh, everything from uh, Timothy Chalamet to Aziz Ansari, uh, Jack Black, Jeff Goldblum, Limmy and Will I Am all come up during today's conversation. Um, and you'll also hear that he is, uh, well, as you'd expect from somebody who interviews stars all the time, uh, a very good interviewee as well. Uh, I've never been complimented on as many questions in such a short period of time. Uh, so I consider me fully buttered up, basically. Um, anyway, enough of that. Um, let's get on with the episode and let's hear from Chris. <laughs> My first question was, I thought I'd go straight in with Shortlist. Um, How does Shortlist decide what to cover, review and feature? What are the sort of criteria? What are the questions you ask? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, just as a bit of background, uh, we work on about six to eight issues at any one time. So that means that we're constantly thinking. We're constantly looking at things. We're constantly um, going to see films before they're out. We're constantly listening to albums and we're constantly thinking like what can we do what can we do so a big part of it is just making sure we're exposed to as much as possible and that we're able to you know our job is to sort of be uh, a few steps ahead of our readers and make sure that it tells them about a documentary that they're probably going to be obsessed with or a netflix show that they're going to be obsessed with so one of the first things we do is is just kind of like are we into it do we think this is exciting is this something that we can't stop talking about because if we can't stop talking about wild wild country which is this amazing netflix documentary about cults. which i'm i'm literally due to start tonight right yeah well we've got to talk about it when you've started because it's one of those things that everybody in the office is talking about it and that's not just writers talking to writers but i'm talking to our art department about it our fashion team our people in sales and if we're having those conversations then by 
that logic. Everybody is. So we do a lot of that. We just see what is out there. Um, And then sometimes it's a little bit more. One of the things I love about being on print is that you get a little bit of um, intuition. And the great thing about being free is that nobody is saying to you that cover didn't sell every time we put Matt Damon on the cover, we do really well. So let's just do him every month. Like you have a much more intuition. So you're not feeling um, like you can't take risks basically. Okay. So it's not such a direct relationship that, that a cover, you can tell a particular cover hasn't been picked up and that effect, that doesn't affect ad rates. No, it doesn't really work in that not way. Not really. No. I mean, I mean, I, I keep quite separate from how the, the, the sort of commercial side works. I think as a free magazine, uh, and I don't know what it's like on paid for titles at the moment. We feel it's really important that we are separate and that we're having conversations separately and that we're not, you know, writing for advertorials or that we're, you know, kind of crossing over. And I don't know if that's because we're free that we're more, more conscious of it or if that's something that everybody's feeling at the moment, but everybody is setting up a content studio in house. Everyone is doing the kind of, um, product stuff for brands so i don't really get involved in too much of the stuff to see how stuff does how many copies get shifted but sometimes it's as simple as like if it rains the magazine might not get picked up because Mm -hmm. stack by the tube is wet um so we try not to when i used to work in in other print media like my first job was at fhm that was my first staff position there was this like men's mag law where like green didn't sell. So you never did green on the cover. There was no green. You'd right. orange was great. Blue, brilliant. Red, really good. And there was just some things you didn't do. And every now and then you would get people that would be like, Oh, come on. We haven't done green for ages. And then you do it and it bombs and they go, that was because it was green, but you don't know if it was because it was green. It could have been because the person on the cover wasn't as famous. So the person on the cover was, too expert you know there's so many things i mean i suppose i guess you could even argue that it's more likely to get to get the green issue out the door if there's someone on it that's pretty low stakes yeah yeah because then you can blame green yeah okay that's interesting um talking about covers in general you mentioned uh, before we got on the call that that covers are decided months in advance does that ever prevent you from putting someone or something urgent on or someone who's had a sort of meteoric rise do you ever or or do you bump do you bump planned covers if something huge comes in we sometimes do move stuff i mean what what we often do is you know it's twofold so we we know for example that there's a star wars film out next december so we're always thinking, okay, when that comes around, who would we do? And, you know, it might be somebody like John Boyega, who's never had a cover before. I imagine we'll have a conversation like that. So you kind of, you you get your big things lined up and then you always have room to do smaller things. I mean, we don't do a famous person on the cover every week. We tend to do two, maybe three a month. And that means that we have a bit of flexibility. Um, we did Timothy Chalamet on the cover in February. And even three months prior, we didn't know how meteoric his ascent was going to be around award season the oscar nomination was a big part of the decision because it, it wasn't mm-hmm. he was promoting another film but he had a very small part in it so that was someone who's even six months before that cover we weren't really aware of who he was but you see this thing happening and you go right he might get nominated for an oscar we should really have a plan in place and that that kind of came together beautifully i think if we were going to do him in six months time it would feel like a bit done um yeah so we do have room to react and we don't always we don't just book up we try and get a couple of things in a month and always have room to do something more reactionary someone younger it's not all film stars as well musicians will will 
do slightly nearer the time as well. Um, it sounds almost like placing aggregator bets sometimes. Yeah. If this thing comes in and this thing comes in, then this will be a huge cover. Yeah. Um, just to, to go back to your sort of uh, your writing life before shortlist, you've obviously worked for a ton of publications. Um, I've got a list here, and I'll have, I'll have mentioned it in the intro to this episode. Okay. Um, either either as a staffer or a freelancer, how did decisions around what they chose to cover and what they commissioned you to write affect how you make those same kind of decisions now? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, one of the big things that in you know the thing that I find at shortlist is that we're not any of the other people and our kind of metrics for what we want to do has always been really different to like Esquire for example um when I was I used to do a bit of work at Esquire in 2013 I was in the office I would come in for freelance cover and I remember one year they had six men and six women and that was considered like a sort of standard you know men did well women did well and then it's sort of completely changed it's men seem to do a lot more now and it's the same with GQ they are still doing women on the cover but that seems to be a big change shortlist we don't really do women on the cover um for the simple fact that we have never been a straight man's magazine and we've never been marketed to like men that want to admire women in a certain way and that yeah. means that we don't put women on the cover. I mean, we did do them at one point but it was always bikinis it was always sexy it was always like licking their lips and it just felt like Actually, the benefit of being free is that you're not trying to market to a particular heteronormative guy. So we've always just done guys. We felt like we weren't doing women justice. And I don't think many, many men's publications do, to be completely honest. I'm, I'm gay, so I don't really get the appeal in seeing a woman like naked, like shirtless or, or whatever on a magazine. So yeah. that's been a big thing. Um, and then just quickly, just um, I guess there's always been things that I'd see people doing things and think I love the way that I used to do stuff at Dazed. I loved the way that they would make someone a bit of a star and by putting them in Dazed when they were quite young, that that would bring a certain bit of gravitas. So we often have cover stars that might be big in six months time or they might be big next year or, and I really like that because there's a sense of a bit more ownership over it. If you style someone in a certain way and, you kind of go, this is a young person you've never seen yet, but you will see them everywhere. Like, I really like that kind of yeah. Yeah. seal of approval. Do you think Do you think some of those those situations where you're putting uh, a, a, perhaps a younger sort of ascending star on the cover, the idea is that that becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy? That, that, that by, by the act of putting them on the cover, mm. that may be the thing that, that ensures that they become a big deal, in, you know, certainly in a UK market. I think definitely. I think, I think a lot of what I'm finding now is a lot of LA publicists uh, know that there's not an equivalent in the US of shortlist. There's not a version of a, uh, a weekly kind of uh, like higher end men's magazine that's also like, kind of doing music and concert. So what we're finding is quite a lot of people pitch people as part of the broader strategy to get onto American GQ a couple of years later. We've done people like Ansel Elgort, who was the star of Baby Driver um, last year, the Edgar Wright film. And, and when that was coming out, I'm pretty sure a lot of our readers didn't know who he was. When we went to shoot him, you know, we weren't all like, oh my God, it's him. Because he wasn't, he was doing young adult films. He was doing a lot of like um, society magazines because he's from like Richstock. But right. part of what we can do is we can go, right pick this up trust us there's a good story here this guy's interesting we're going to tell you why and it's not as if you have to like click because no one's having to look at it on a newsstand and go am I going to enjoy this am I going to read this am I going to get my money's worth so there is a different relationship I think sometimes yeah. it is a self-fulfilling prophecy I don't want us 
to always be doing people that no one's heard of, uh, you know, or if we are going to do people, I want that to be done in such a way that it looks irresistible. Um, we did the lead in uh, Steven Spielberg's film Ready Player One in March. He's a, a lad called Ty Sheridan. He's been in a few indie films. I don't think a lot of people knew who he was at that point, but we did a shoot in Austin where he's from. We went to his hometown. We shot him in a junkyard in like high-end tracksuits and whether you knew who he was or not I think that cover was really strong and I think you you go okay this looks interesting I haven't seen this before um which helps mm -hmm. yeah and I guess the junkyard aesthetic matches the film as well so there's yeah. a connection to be made just, there. just subtly um, enough as well though we don't want it to be too kind of hit them over the head and he had a he no had, he had a t-shirt saying uh press start in like analog thing and which is a very, very unsubtle, but it's also APC, and APC is a brand that we think is cool. So it's kind of, you're kind of, yeah, there's there's illusions, certainly, like, not Yeah, and, and it sounds like it could have been a lot more on the nose, you know, if you've got if you've got him in an Atari t-shirt with a Mario hat, oh my God, you know, yeah, sat, on, yeah. sat on a shipping container. Um, when Shortlist uh, began, I remember it launching, I lived in London at the time, when it launched in London, it felt like it was positioned or it was it was taken by the public initially at least as a magazine for men but also a point of difference to a lot of kind of lads mags yeah. uh, and sort of supposedly highbrow culture mags full of expensive ads for watches mm. and so on. Um, most of those magazines are largely gone now yeah. so um, or have dwindling readership. So does that change who and what Shortlist is for? Do you, have you basically absorbed some of the readership of those magazines and, yeah, and then yeah. broadened as a result? It's a really a really interesting question because I think what our reader is is always going to be changing but we know that we are making content for um, young men but it's actually it is kind of like late 20s 30s I'm 29 so I think it's my age and a little bit older but you know we've got teams that do all the market research on who gets it who the ads are for and it is generally your like city kind of cosmopolitan forward-thinking metropolitan male however i have always said being on the editorial side whoever is at that tube station at that point with at least one hand free can get that magazine and read it and enjoy it and i i think you know we are seeing you know we're picking up a lot yeah, the circulation has been going up ever since we we launched i think it's like 505,000 a week now and and that wouldn't be possible if we weren't constantly like um aware of who's getting it but I think just to get back to your question I think it's a bit of everything because I think as a 29 year old on a, a moderate salary there are some times when I want something really high end like I, I will spend a lot on certain things and there's some things I won't and I think our magazine is constantly like mobile and it's uh, malleable because we're not going to go you should spend 40 grand on this chair and we don't do a lot on cars for example but if we do something on cars we did um a motoring issue last year which was a sort of like a bit of a test project to see if we do one more often we did really cool photography of the cup holders in some of the most expensive cars in the world because it's not about whether you're going to go buy one in the weekend it's more like well our readers aren't going to get to sit in one so what do the cup holders look like and some of them look really fancy so i think it's mm -hmm. really cool like taking a really high-end thing and looking at it in a slightly less high-end way and i think that constant kind of umming and like toing and throwing is is a big part of, of how shortlist works
Mm-hmm. Um, earlier in your career, you wrote a lot about gaming and about music. Um, mm-hmm. What are the key differences in terms of what people are looking for from record and game reviews yeah. and how each one's treated? It's a really good question. Uh, music has changed so much now because I think anybody with an internet connection uh, is able to kind of access the most intelligent uh, opinions on the most interesting aspects of anything. I mean, if, if Kanye West puts out an album on Friday, for example, by Saturday, you know, across Twitter, you will find like amazing things, amazing opinions and amazing angles to something. Um, a Kanye album, there'll be the way that The Ringer covers it and the way The Sunday Times covers it and the way GQ covers it and the way we cover it is all completely different. I think a big change for music is that no one is waiting for your one opinion because it used to be i used to do reviews for nme you would go out and buy the magazine you would open it and it would be a very comprehensive digest now i mean i do think opinion journalism and criticism like that is changing and with shortlist we've never positioned ourselves as critics in the same way we don't review things out of 10 we don't give scores at all in fact we talk about things in uh, slightly different ways you know um it almost feels like um like the, the review in terms of shortlist is just whether it's chosen to be to be yeah, covered at all yeah because we don't want to shit all over something because it's just first of all i think it's actually really lazy and very easy if you've got something like the emoji movie which everybody know, knew was going to be bad everybody knew it was corporate cash out like the cast was like james court you know there wasn't really anything redeeming in there all the people that went to the press screening to see it for free and slagged it off i don't think there was any really intelligent thing in that it was just yeah like we know there's a turd emoji in it like you saying the film is turd is like not the most hot take and i think i think negative journalism not to say you shouldn't be negative by the way Mm-hmm. But kind of piling in on something and not taking it somewhere further is like just not working at the moment. And I think I feel like, as you say, with shortlist, if we put something in, there's a bit of an endorsement. But, you know, we will do a film write up where we'll talk only about Nicolas Cage's hair or we will do as we did with uh, the last Wes Anderson film, Isle of Dogs. It, it was an imagined conversation between him and his wife. And I think. <laughs> We do get tweets from people that are like, I don't see anyone writing about stuff like this. And that's not to say we're better than it than anyone else. But I think we just don't want to be part of this, like, we're chin-strokey armchair critics that I see everyone do it. And I just don't find any of it particularly interesting. You know, I find the notion of gig reviews in 2018 completely mind-blowing. Because if I wasn't there, I don't care what someone who didn't pay to see it thinks of it. I just find it. Like, I'm never going to be in that particular moment. So, and in terms of gaming, I think actually what's really difficult is is the challenge is to write for people who don't game all the time. You have to almost write for people that speak gaming as a second language, not a first. And we have a mm-hmm. lot of casual gamers. We have a lot of readers who have a Switch and they have a lot of mobile gaming and they, you know, have a Nintendo DS or whatever and Playstations. But those guys are already talking on a whole other level about gaming and we can't do what gaming magazines do. So again, it's, it's like we did a, a story in our front section. Um, we do two gaming issues a year, one to two every year. We did a thing on like the, the prettiest sunsets in this summer's hottest games, which was just a gorgeous kind of spread, a really visual story just about hey, sunsets look really nice in games at the moment. And I think that's, 
it, picking something out like that is just the for me the best way to cover these kind of things because if your reader is into Nintendo, they know where they're gonna whether they're gonna buy the new game or not. They don't need you to say to you, to them, "Hey, I liked it." Like if if <laughs> they've got a Switch, they're gonna want you know. So I think it's I think the the role of of us and the role of the journalist is is less about helping someone make the decision. I think it's about providing analysis and context and a bit like genius how you go on genius and it tells you what the lyrics mean it's about mm -hmm. insight into things they're already consuming rather than helping them decide whether to consume something or not yeah um you're the person that shortlist deciding the entertainment strategy mm -hmm. you're the person writing features on james franco and jeff goldblum aziz ansari and so on liaising with publicists labels and studios mm -hmm. To what extent do you allow conditions to be attached to those high-profile interviews? How often how often do they come in? Yeah. And is there a point with restrictions that you say this is handing over too much control yeah. of the access and the article? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, I don't know what, it, what it's like for people who don't work in the industry or what their preconceptions are. Before I worked in journalism, I just assumed you would ring Amy Winehouse and say, can we interview you? And you'd just go and do that. Um so we have certain standards. We have certain levels of access we require for a cover story. And the rule is if you don't want to do that, you don't get a cover. You go inside. You, you know, we sh So we shoot all of our covers now. That's a decision that we made about two years ago nearly um, because we weren't, we weren't spending on shoots. We weren't going for people. And that really radically changed how we do covers because um, say if you've got someone like Ryan Gosling who is not coming over to the U.K., he would say, well, I'll give you a 30 minute interview and you can buy in, buy a picture of me that can run as a cover. We were not getting any insight into Ryan Gosling that everyone else hadn't already got. We wouldn't be the first people to interview. So we changed our tact and we said, we have to shoot everybody. That's the rule. If you want a shortlist cover, you have to put the work in, you have to work with us creatively. Um, and we have minimum ex sort of amount of exposure. So we would ask for a minimum of 60 minutes for a shoot and a minimum of 60 minutes for an interview. Most people actually do go beyond that because in those two years, we've kind of, I think, established that we know what we're doing. Like we're doing something good. We're doing something very different that no one else in the market is doing in terms of they're very, very colorful covers. They're very loud and there's lots of character. There's no suiting. There's no black and white. There's no sitting on a fence crying or anything <laughs> no one is supposed to look like they're going to a funeral is the rule um mm -hmm. so now that we've sort of established what we want to do people are generally quite good um we tend to not have publicists present um which is initially that was harder to get through than we would have anticipated and to be completely honest with you because i don't think there's any point doing this unless you are completely honest some people have sat in on interviews and i'm really annoyed about it but you some you sometimes you go, how is this going to affect what the reader's getting? Maybe they don't like whatever. So we have had people sit in. Generally, I say this is a 49-year-old man. He's got three kids. He can look after himself. Like I will mention there's a publicist there or if he you know, is struggling to answer a question, he can say no comment. He can say, I don't want to answer that. I will write that mm. in, but you've got to train your clients how to say no to questions like that's your job so we have rules about that because i think what i want our cover stories to do generally is to offer a bit of insight into who, who this person is at this particular moment so 
we do 50 issues a year when we don't always get exclusives james franco did um nme and i think he did maybe one of the saturday maybe the times i think we don't always get exclusives we sometimes do but we don't always so we don't want to try and ever offer the definitive story it's not like well it all started in 1983 and then he did this and then he did this because you can read that on the internet you can read that in the interviews that someone gives at any one time so i just i really want us to just tell a very specific story about where they are in that time um some magazines particularly in the us they go bungee jumping with their people and like vanity fair selena gomez went and cooked at the journalist's house and they get this insane access and we don't get that okay mm-hmm. but i think there's nothing wrong with cutting your cloth accordingly and saying look we're not bungee jumping we're not cooking with anyone we're not playing you know a round of golf with robert pattinson this is what we have done um so we as, as long as we can one of the things we say when we're putting someone on the cover is we like this person because they have something to say so you they need to be want to talk to us um there was a cover I probably shouldn't name who it is because I might get in trouble. But there was a public, there was a cover we were going to do last year that we pulled because they rejected five different pitches for a concept. They wanted to wear their own clothes. They wanted to be shot. They wanted to decide who the photographer was. They wanted like half an hour to just grab some pictures, like portraiture, which we don't really do that much. And the, it was getting so frustrating that we said, "I think what you want." and what we do are incompatible. And I think you'd actually be better going to another publication. Um, Didn't go down very well because nobody wants to get sort of dumped like that. But um, Mm -hmm. there was also, there was a musician last year who, again, I probably can't name because we are reopening discussions with them at the moment, but they wanted a cover and it was like, you can get a 10 minute shoot and can you do the interview on the phone? And we just, I said, no. I said, I don't think it's asking a lot for this person to do an hour. And bearing in mind that even before I worked there, you know, we shot Kendrick Lamar a few years ago. We've done in, this in terms of musicians. like the, We do get high-profile people, and we often say, well, if he'll sit down for an hour, anyone less famous should want to do it. And and like So we kind of – I wasn't happy with this. I, w- I wasn't happy with the idea of a phone chat because I want to know what this person – looks like in the flesh because our readers want to know that and i want to know what his eye contact is like i want to know where he looks i want to know what his hair's like up close because we are going to be sitting next to someone our readers won't get to sit next to and i really like telling that to people that this is this is what their posture's like and this is what they smell like because that's the sort of stuff i'd want to know if i met someone you know so we've kind of pulled this musician because it was like a case of you're not willing to do the work that other people do and if we start letting people on the cover with 10 minutes it undermines all the people that put an hour in or two hours in, in some cases. So we have standards that you should always be malleable, but um, we do have rules. Yeah. And I guess uh, the way that you go about features in terms of, you know, spending a finite amount of time with somebody, but kind of focusing on a specific period uh, kind of uh, prevents you from having to talk about, X big controversy that happened 15 years ago yeah. in their lives that they're always asked a question about exactly. right at the end, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we always try and get them. What I, what I like is, you know, if you treat somebody with the basic level of respect, which is, you know, this is different to brown nosing them, but when you treat someone with a basic level of respect, they are more likely to have those difficult conversations with you at the end. Um, when we did Timothy Chalamet, 
we ran our cover two weeks after he did the Sunday Times culture cover. And there was a an issue where the Sunday Times had asked about him uh, donating his fee from his Woody Allen film to um, Time's Up and an LGBT right. charity. Um, it was considered inappropriate to ask because Timothy had put a statement up about it. And, you know, the idea was he'd said what he needed to say. And it was, it was a really difficult conversation to have. And actually, during that period, the, the sort of in Hollywood, at least, they were sort of saying he's not speaking out about it that much because the people that vote at the Oscars, a lot of them might still agree that Woody Allen and the situation with him currently was a bit of a witch hunt. So people were saying it was a very calculated move and that's why he wouldn't want to elaborate or really like um, verbally like put Woody Allen down. The Times did ask him about it and it went quite um, sour and they were kind of, it, it didn't end particularly well. And I was told by a source that they had been blacklisted by this agency that looked after Timothy and a bunch of other people from working with them again. That was like a rumor that was going around. Um, so I was due to interview him and, you know, I was like, I can't not ask about Woody Allen. And it's really difficult because I don't want to not ask, but I seen it kind of almost firsthand how this has gone. But mm. we had, we ended up having three conversations, um, two of which were on the phone after our shoot because he had to go back to L.A., um, we had this initial meeting, two more chats. And on the last one, it was about midnight in the UK. And I, I kind of knew that this was our last chance together. To, and I just asked him and he gave me a really good answer and his team didn't mind. And I, so I think controversy and just generally asking difficult questions, uh, you just, there's a way to do it. But I think um, there was a John Hamm profile in American Esquire uh, last month. And they bring up this, he's, he must be what, like 46 or 48, I guess. They bring up this incident when he was at school, when he was at college, where he was part of a fraternity that like really badly uh, beat up a guy. I actually didn't know about it. But if you read the profile, John, it makes it quite clear that he constantly gets asked about it. And it comes up in every interview. Right. And, you know, it happened to him, say, like 30 years ago, almost if you've got quotes out there from him on that, I don't see the value in asking him again. Because if you asked me about the time I did something really, really like the time I smoked at secondary school by the bike sheds, if you asked me that every year since, I'd be like, look, I've, to I've fucking told you everything you need to know. Um, so, which also is worth mentioning, one of the things I would do if we're going to do a profile, read everything they've done. And actually, what have they not said? And what does what they've not said tell us? And what is what they've not spoken about so far? Is there anything we can glean from that? That's a good way to go. But it can be hard yeah. because I think ultimately you spend a lot of time in someone's company. It's really difficult to, you know, feel like you're betraying them. But ultimately, you are making something for your reader. And yeah. Also, if you if you ask difficult questions in a the right way, I think I don't think they mind. I don't think you, if you do it appropriately, I don't think it's a problem. And it's very evident if you're a reader, especially reading a, a kind of an in-depth feature, a cover feature, when there's something that is clearly the topic of the day yeah. as far as that interview goes, and it's not asked about. And and you you know you know that's because they've been you know it's been shoehorned out of the interview by by a publicist mm -hmm. or by condition conditions to get the interview in the first place. And so it just kind of feels like a very obvious elephant in the room type situation. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess as well, like you're saying, the, the example with John Hamm, 
it must feel to him like trying to stamp out a pandemic, you know, because yeah. every quote he uses is used is used the next time a journalist goes to figure out what to ask him. Exactly. And so the process must repeat forever. He even says he even says in the piece, I didn't know this was going to be a hit piece, which I think is, you know, he's clearly gone. Oh, shit. This is one of those interviews where they trap you. Um, so I also think if we can find those interviews where they've already talked about it, our readers probably can as well. We can reference stuff. I just. Sometimes if you get, say you get 60 minutes with someone, you really can't use that time asking stuff that they've already talked about at length. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, yeah. Um, who's been the most surprising interviewee in terms of you having hugely under or overestimated them prior to meeting them? Well, that's a really good question. Um, under Underwhelming was probably Aziz Ansari. Um, he's someone that I really, really championed for a cover when, uh, you know, I, I loved Master of None season one. When I knew it was coming back, I, I, I think we kind of worked on, it was about, for about seven months prior, we kind of went, we've got to do Aziz. And actually when my editor, I had an editor, uh, Joe Makatich, he started June 2016. So I had an editor prior to him joining when he started, we sat down and we put together like a sort of dream kind of, if we could get any of these, these guys, this would be amazing. And I think it was about eight, I think it was about seven people, two of whom I've decided were terrible ideas and they've been scratched off. But the other five, as of three weeks ago, we just shot the, the last one on that list. And it was an amazing feeling that we, and one of those was Aziz. So that was where I was going with that. So um, we did him and we shot him uh, in a hotel 
uh, in London, and he was really fun on the shoot. The shoot was him kind of like tra- he like trashed a hotel room, so we got a stylist, like a, a, a prop stylist. To we had this room for two hours, one hour of which was the shoot. So this woman had like half an hour prior to like wreck the place, mm-hmm. and then position Aziz in it, get all these shots, and then unwreck it in half an hour after. And the interview was great. Uh, the shoot was great. Um, I really liked the photo shoot. He was so up for it. He was playing golf off a sofa. He was throwing pizza. It was really fun. Um, because up to that point, everybody had been putting him in formal wear to be like, look, this kind of, you don't see that every day. And, and I, I kind of was sick of seeing him. So he was in streetwear. He's in Adidas tracksuit. We got to the interview and he was really jet lagged. He was lying down for quite a lot of it looking at the ceiling it was kind of like being a therapist because i was sitting to like a right angle um Mm -hmm. and the first thing he did was take my notebook off me and read all my questions so i was a bit like oh come on like and he did it under the pretense of like oh oh you've got lovely handwriting and he just read everything so i decided to not ask him anything that was written down so i just went right well if you're going to do that then um but i just he he was not as uh, forthright as I expected and he wasn't as outgoing as I expected but what I would say is one thing I've learned doing the job is that it's the wrong um, outlook for you to expect your subjects to be these kind of like cartwheeling like joke spewing like because regular people aren't like that and I think what what I learned and what I've learned from working for certain editors and what I've learned from writing features is that you can't cede control of your story by putting all your faith in this person being a one man show. And if that person Mm -hmm. is grumpy and if they're difficult and if they're quiet, that's fine because your job is to almost report and explain this person to your readers. So it becomes a story of, well, why is the most in demand charismatic guy in the world? Like, so quiet and why is this guy looking like he would rather be anywhere else and and that becomes the story um but it does mean that I came away from the experience feeling a bit like oh man this guy I, I really thought he was going to be kind of you know because again like we did him and I think the FT did him you know it wasn't like he was doing 18 interviews so he was one yeah. where I felt like the the illusion was sort of shattered but I I still maintain that that's fine the other one the reverse of that for me um I think it would be Jeff Goldblum which is one that I think is one of the better known cover stories that I did um the the pictures kind of blew up and were being discussed all over the internet and we still get messages from people that are like oh like at Christmas loads like loads of fans made Christmas tree angels out of the the magazine pages which was really cool mm-hmm. um I was assigned to do that quite late because I just got back from Toronto and then like two days later I had to go to LA uh somebody else one of my colleagues has had visa problems and I'm not uh, a huge kind of Jurassic Park kind of Goldblum fanatic so I, I was kind of going into it not quite getting like his his kind of omnipresent like you know I didn't get the, the thing um, yeah. But it kind of helped because I wasn't like none of the questions were about the fly or or like any of his work. It ended up just being this conversation with him. I mean, about a third of the whole piece is him just describing how he gets ready in the morning because it was just so funny. He tells you everything in 
so precisely. And I, I came away. He's 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 magical. He's like a a, a genie, like this live tanned like man that's just so wonderful and and like everybody was just enamored by him so that was a big Mm. one for me because uh, it really changed my perception of him and it was he means a lot to different generations of men which isn't always the case with our readers my dad thought was that was really cool like some of my older friends so those were two where um my own experiences where i was quite surprised in different ways the other one i wanted to mention is we did jack black in december for jumanji Jumanji, I mean, it's not going to win an Oscar for acting. You know, reboot hysteria is quite common. Jack Black has been on the cover before, but hardly in his prime. Someone that we were like, we think this is really cool, but, you know, I was still kind of not quite sure. And the interview was really good. Just I got a writer, Ralph Jones, who's one of our staff writers. I got him to do it, and he is what made it good. The two of them together were what made it work. So Mm -hmm. someone that on paper you go, I don't get it. I don't know if there's a really big story here. Um, he met Jack three times during this um, trip to Barcelona. We went out to Barcelona to do the shoot, and that was a big part of the story. It was the, I met three Jack Blacks while I was in Barcelona, and it and and that, I really loved that. So I think that made me go, yeah, this guy's great, and you know. Yeah, that's really interesting as well because Jack Black is one of those people I would almost have put into into the same kind of feelings that you had about Aziz. Like right. I've I've seen interview I've seen interviews with him where you know you're kind of you're expecting him to be always on yeah. to be this kind of you know hilarious sort of almost like Robin Williams esque exactly. character, and and some people have caught him on a, on a real off day. So yeah, it's interesting to hear this kind of the, the facets of his personality come out. Comedians um, generally, I would say, comedians, you know, they are performing just as much as actors. And if you don't expect Tom Cruise to be hanging off a helicopter in real life, then you shouldn't expect comedians to be funny in real life. I think that's my yeah. take on it. Do you, talking about the, the, the kind of the Aziz thing and you talking about, you know, that ultimately you're reporting on, on what you find, do you ever feel that it's it's part of your job to extract the fun out of the person you're talking uh, to? If, you're, if you've got someone who's kind of dour, do you do you need to shape your questions to make them an entertaining? Yeah. It's really read? interesting because what you have to do is you have to. It's like choose your own adventure, and and like I never understood this until like very like a while after a while after I started writing. But you you can't just write your questions. You have to then it's branching off. Okay, if that goes badly, like how am I going to save it? And if this goes well. And we can only going to get him to talk about this if if this works. And if he hates this conversation, then he's going to hate this. But what I would say is sometimes you can overplan, and and sometimes flying by the seat of your pants is better because I always try and think like you know famous people aren't like you or I. They are different, but um, you still have to treat them like they're quite normal, and you have to talk to them like you would talk to normal people. And what I've learned is that quite a lot of people who, you know, will say that they just hate the way people blow smoke up their ass, you know. And mm. and and like I found, I interviewed Tom Holland, who is the third uh, Spider-Man, and he was saying everybody loves me, and like everybody is, you know, such a big fan. And I'm a big fan of of several comic book films and including spider-man and and he was like do you know what i mean and and i i was like yeah but i said you know some of those films aren't good so you know you're you're just as likely to be like you know unpopular and i think if you kind of remove yourself from like i need to tell them what they want to hear i think that really helps but i I think generally you've got to just extract 
as much as you can about anything. And I love it if, converse, you know, if you interview an actor and the conversation um, is entirely about one thing, that's interesting. You can make it about that. I interviewed um, Bill Hader, the former SNL cast member. Um, it's for next week's issue. It's inside. It's not a cover story. We had an hour on the phone and all the, we kept coming back to this um, anxiety that he has. He has really bad anxiety, um, really bad self-esteem issues, uh, really bad um stress levels and he would say to me that when he was doing snl he was constantly having like hyperventilating off the side of the stage and then he'd go on and he'd become this like you know bouncy kind of whatever so in fact the whole feature has ended up being a piece about how how to how to stay zen by the least zen man in hollywood basically and i think mm -hmm. i never i did not know that was going to be like that until 10 minutes in of this 60 minute chat i was like this is is a great idea to just focus it a bit so sometimes i just think the best thing to do is just not not plan too much and and like not wing it that sounds awful but just be open to, to how it goes yeah not have a not have a fully written flow chart yeah. before, before you Um, I had a couple of things I wanted to ask, just more sort of general questions. One is that um, of of the th of things that you perhaps did or style a uh, style that you would write in when you were uh, when you were starting out, do you use anything that you used to do as an example to people of what not to do now? Is there a pitfall that you fell into earlier in your career that you now advise yeah. people against? There's there's one thing actually, um, and once you see it, you will see it everywhere. And it's it's my editor's pet peeve and it became my pet peeve. And it's something I used to always do, which is there's a couple of things. First of all, um, saying someone is not how you'd imagine in the films, like whether someone's really serious in real life and they're funny or vice versa. You always see it in profiles. It's like, hey, it turns out this really serious guy is a barrel of laughs as if they were going to be like <laughs> murdering people. He's an actor. Who knew? Yeah. yeah. And then you also get he's just as funny as he is on, you know, like, okay, everybody is funny when they're trying to impress you. That's the rule, right? An actor who is trying to promote their three or four out of five film is going to turn the charm on. They're going to, laughing is another one. This is something I cut out of copy. If you go, here's a big paragraph about how they laugh. Like, okay, the way they laugh is not as interesting as you think, especially if they're going to laugh at, everything you say like and that's what people mm -hmm. do because they're trying to charm you so i always get rid of laugh references i always get rid of um megawatt smile because anyone in hollywood gets their teeth fixed every just assume we know they've got a big lovely smile with big white yeah and it's like saying that it's like saying they walked in with two working arms yeah, yeah. almost he has a left foot and a right foot which is really interesting you know limmy the comedian limmy always does that thing when someone dies where he goes oh yeah i had the pleasure of meeting him very funny and surprisingly down to surprisingly earth. down to earth that is it <laughs> that makes me think of limmy every time so i always get rid of that um i think that the, the describing how what someone's eating is awful because it's always chips it's always if it's a woman it's oh my god and she's eating triple cooked chips and she and she models for prada how does she do it like it's bullshit and there's no mm. and and like yeah I think there's ways to do food eating that's that's not that obvious uh, that's not that sort of boring 
So there's those um, just cliches. Are you you know you just anything that feels like you got it out of the book of phrases. Um, I just I, there's any any kind of words where I feel like um, you wouldn't you wouldn't use that when you talk to your friends. So why are you talking to our readers like that? But that is part yeah. of the, re- the shortlist is very sort of you know it, the references have got to be really really modern and also you can't it, it's kind of on a level we're not vogue like we're not you know so there's stuff like that and then i think in general writing that's not interview based um i think actually the worst the worst crime is is just sticking to a like a sort of cut and paste formula i love i love it when someone just has the confidence to start in a really random place but make it work and there's been a couple of people i've commissioned before who they'll do a, a, a very diligent job interviewing someone, but it, I can, all, I know what, I know how it's going to go. I know that they're going to start with this long paragraph. And then it goes, you might think it's weird that this person's eating chips given that they've just, and you know, and then you get this and then you get a quote about me too. And you get a quote about Trump and you get a thing about how much they laugh and then it ends. And it's like, I'm 400 pounds out of pocket. And you've just sent me the most, I could have, a computer could have written that. So I try to just say, please no cliches please no boring um yeah i could go on about this for so long yeah we have have like a i have a sort of very informal list of commandments that i send to writers where it's like try try and say something that's going to make them uncomfortable say try and get them to say something you wouldn't expect and you'd be surprised how few people do that you'd be surprised how few times people want to really it's like, what do you actually want to know from this person? You can't just say, what was it like working with the Coen brothers? Because they're not going to say it was shit. They're going to say, oh, it was great. I love the Coen brothers. Or if you say, yeah. who are you desperate to work with? Well, that's not going to be interesting, is it? Unless they say Woody Allen. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess it's like, it, it, it's a shame that people might feel that it's a triumph if they get out the other end of an interview and think, oh, well, you know, that went smoothly. Mm. You know, smoothly, such a, it's such a, it's such a non-result. Yeah, you want them to remember it for the right reasons. But I think also the way that people are used to talking to famous people for work does come down to something which I tell new writers and old writers to do, which is you've got to remember that you're not there to be their friend, okay? You can get on, but if you're going to interview them and then send them a fucking tweet later and just try and try to connect, that is not what you're there to do. You're there to explain this person to our readers because they're not doing that. So I think that's a big problem. I think we we as people so desperately want to be liked that it's very, very hard to meet someone famous and not just have a nice, polite chit-chat. I think also I do think that the way that the media is getting smaller, more intimate, and I think that the, you know there was a while where journalism was quite a crude sort of job. People didn't like journalists. People didn't like the press. There is this attempt at like, look, hey, ooh, we're we're not like those guys. We're not news of the world. Like we're cool. And I think you can, you can just stop asking the relevant stuff. So I think that's a big problem is, is just a really understandable, but irritating need to be pals with them. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, yeah. And you see it so much. Um, so we're almost at the end. One thing I do at the end of every episode is uh, delve back into each writer's body of work and pull out some pull out some choice phrases. So I've got five phrases. Some of these are you. Some of these are not you. Um, so I want to see want to see if you recognise your own voice here. Okay. Um, the first one's quite long, which will hopefully make it a bit easier. So here we go. 
number one. But every now and then, the man with a website URL for a name hits the nail on the head and his opinions manage to actually be spot on. It's a bit like the annual event where salmon leap up a river. Some of them fail miserably, landing on the riverbank and being eaten by bears in the process, but some salmon make it to the top of the river and breed copiously. Okay, that was a piece I wrote for The Mirror about Will I Am. That's right. And it was because he said, let me try and think... He said something like, the voice isn't here to make them famous. It's just there to provide the platform for them to then make themselves famous, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think the piece... I, th- I think you're right, because everyone was bashing the voice for not producing a hit. And Yeah, and he was like, yeah. it's up to them. And it's like, well, why are you getting paid to mentor them if you're only going to do it for six weeks? I mean, you know. And he produced a song for someone on who won the voice, and it did terribly. So, you know... That's we're, okay. good start. I like, I, that's good. We're, we're, we're one for one. Uh, number two. But it's only now the show has tied its characters' lives into this destructive cycle of blackmail, murder, and corruption. And though nobody has come off from it very well, it only adds to the captivatingly bleak environment. Uh, okay, I think that is a review of True Detective that I did for The Independent. It is. Yeah! I think two it, for two. I don't know what episode, but I reviewed four episodes for them at the end of the season out of eight. And I had to get up, I had to watch it in the US, in, in US time, so I had to watch it at like 3 a.m. while it was simulcast on Sky, write it up, but then I was also working in the office, so I had to then get two more hours sleep and then go in. Oh my God, it was so, it just wasn't worth it in the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly not for series two of True Detective. <laughs> so uh, all right, number three. Not having arrived today with any sort of agenda, she apparently simply fancies a chat, so a chat is what we have. I don't think that is me. I almost feel like I recognise that, and I think it got posted today on the internet. Would that be right? Uh, I I don't think so, no. I don't think that is me, but now I'm wondering if that's not true. Okay, well, I'll I'll take your first answer. Okay. Uh, you're right. It's it's not okay. you. That was uh, it was Peter Robinson writing about Lord in the Guardian uh, oh, some time I ago. I read that yesterday, and that's why it felt recent. Uh, okay, yeah, I think it's I think it's from 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 a while back, but it's a really um, good interview that because he's really open about how kind of chal- like she challenges him quite a lot, and I think that that difficult relationship they have is something that I love to see in interviews. Yeah, absolutely. Um, number four, it's quite a long one again. Okay. Whether the judging panel feels Sheeran's success is so immense and so era-defining that it can't be ignored, even his loudest detractors would have their work cut out arguing he hasn't proved hugely influential judging by the charts, or they genuinely feel his skill as an unashamedly popular songwriter deserves recognition, or there's a degree of mischievous, knowingly controversial intent involved, it's an intriguing question. I don't think that's me because I don't think I've written about Ed Sheeran before. Okay, Uh, you're right. Do I think... uh, Alexis. It's oh god! It's Alexis Petridis uh, in the Guardian talking about Ed Sheeran being nominated for the Mercury in in possibly one of the century's longest sentences. I think. That was long. What year was <laughs> yeah. that? Was it for? Was it the recent? No. Was it? it was, I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think I think Divide was nominated for last year's Mercury, so I expect that's that's the one it was for. Right, yeah. Okay, that's four for four so far. Uh, final one. It's no coincidence 2014 single centuries with its frantic clapping, rousing chants and not so subtle sampling of Suzanne Vega's banger Tom's Diner was used by ESPN to soundtrack their sports coverage. That's the kind of band Fallout Boy are now, massive in every possible sense. Uh, that is that. OK, I think that might be a cover story I did with Pete Wentz for Notion, but... 
it is. Yes. Oh, it is. Which means you. not only I have it on not my only wall. You've... I don't know if you can oh, okay. see. I can. Yeah, yeah. Because that was my first cover that I ever got commissioned, so I framed the cover. Oh, amazing! Yeah. Well, uh, not only not only are you one of the few people to get five out of five, but I think you've equaled you've equaled previous guest Laura Snape's record of not only naming all five but knowing what each one of them is about <laughs> as well. So, uh, you're joint a, joint top of the leaderboard really so good, far. Really good game. I actually when I was uh, so when I first moved to London, I did a review for NME and I showed some of my London friends when it came out, and there was a phrase. One of my mates who was like a sports reporter, he teased me for and i think it was i think i referred to some of the one of the songs that this like wanky indie band played as like smoky reverberations and he he was like that's the cuntiest thing i've ever heard and he would on our it always comes up on facebook memories this one time of the year where he'll like mention it to me he'll be like oh are you gonna come out tonight like there'll be no smoky reverberations but you know but when I used to do these NME little reviews, they'd be like a hundred words. You had to just pack as much information in as you could, so everyone did sort of. But yeah, oh, that was fun. I enjoyed that. That was good. Glad I... Super. Well, that brings it. That's the end of the quiz and the end of the episode. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for taking the time to do it. I really, awesome. really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to hear it back as well. So there we go. Many thanks to Chris Mandel for being this week's guest on Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with reviews, critics and criticism. Uh, thanks so much to him for giving us a little guide to the inner workings of Shortlist and some of the finer points of his career. Um, next week, we take a left turn into the world of travel. I'll be talking to the destinations editor at Lonely Planet about how they pick uh countries, how they uh, choose their hotels, um, whether they get lobbied by uh, people who run restaurants and so on, um, the dangers that come with travel writing, what happens if they write a guide and the government then tells you you can't fly there, um, all this and more. Uh, just basically trying to get a look into the world of a uh, industry that effectively reviews entire countries. Um, so more of that next Friday. If you want to uh, follow us on Instagram or Twitter, it's at reads like a four. You can email uh, reads like a four at gmail.com uh, and that's all the smoky reverberations we have for this week so thanks once more for listening and we will see you next friday hi this is craig robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast comes from invesco qqq the official etf of the ncaa invesco qqq is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.